Scripture to Genesis chapter 43. I imagine those, those words in context of him looking at Jerusalem. We're going to talk a little bit about that this morning and his broken heart. Uh, Tim Keller defines the biblical concept of peace or shalom in Hebrew as universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. Universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. Keller states, God created the world to be a fabric for everything to be woven together and interdependent. Keller goes on to illustrate Shalom. He says, if I threw a thousand threads onto the table, they wouldn't be fabric. They'd just be threads lying on top of each other. Threads become a fabric when each one has been woven together under around and through every other one. The more interdependent they are, the more beautiful they are. The more interwoven they are, the stronger and warmer they are. The most basic fabric in our society is the family. That's where we learn what it is to weave in, under, and around, and through people. That's where we experience this joy of of great harmony and belonging and interdependent relationships. It's a place where we realize the Hebrew concept of shalom, where we experience it. And that's not what we have seen in Joseph's family up to this point. The very opposite of shalom. His family has been marred and broken by severed relationships, no warmth, no safety, where the threads of their lives have been literally pulled apart. But what we're starting to see, starting in the last chapter and then in this chapter and the couple chapters to come, is this, this road to bringing shalom back to that family, bringing peace, bringing reconciliation back into that family. Let's read God's word, starting in verse 1 of chapter 43. God's word says, Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought up from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again and buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless you bring your brother. If you will send your brother with us, we will go down and buy food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had a brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was the answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die. Both we and you and our little ones, I will be a pledge of his safety for my hand. You shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. 
we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise and go to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your brother and Benjamin. As for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them. And Benjamin, they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring those men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, Is it because of the money which was replaced in the sacks the first time that we were brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us and make us servants and seize our donkeys? So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks. And there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us. And we've brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. The steward replied, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when they had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared to present for Joseph's coming at noon. For they heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house with him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about the welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man with whom, of whom you spoke? Is he alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrate, prostrated, prostrated themselves And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. He entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came back out. And controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. They served him by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews for it is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken from them to Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as the others. They drank and were merry there. Father God, I pray that you will bless 
the preaching of your word into your people's hearts. Amen. One way to look at the Joseph narrative is an extended story of reconciliation. In the last chapter, we began to see this in chapter 42 with, with the good guilt that was brought on them. And here we continue to see the road to reconciliation, the road back to Shalom in that family. If you remember, it was Shalom that, that the lack of Shalom that drove them apart. At the beginning of Joseph's narrative in chapter 37, if you remember there in verse 4, it says that his brothers couldn't even speak peaceably to Joseph. That word there is shalom. There was a lack of shalom in that house at the very beginning. The family was already torn apart because of jealousy and arrogance and pride and hatred. And what is striking in this chapter that we just read is that no less than four times the word shalom is used. You see it in verse 23 for the first time when the servant comes back in and they give their excuses and the servant replies, peace to you, shalom be yours. Don't worry, peace. And then in verses 27 and 28, we have the other three uses of of shalom where, where the brothers come in and bow down and Joseph inquired about their welfare. He inquired about their shalom. Was there shalom? And the brothers reply, yes, there is shalom. And and my father has shalom. So what we see here is, is a turning of the tide, if you will, where the family is being brought back together. The beginning of peace and reconciliation That's what's at the root of this chapter, the beginnings of reconciliation. And the first thing that we notice is it comes through powerlessness. Peace or shalom and reconciliation comes through powerlessness. As we left chapter 42, Jacob was not willing to let Benjamin go. Do you remember that? He said, no, I'm not going to lose my other favorite son. He was now only had that one remaining favorite son from the favorite wife. He was the beloved, the only one. And here we're in year two of the famine and the food that they brought back has run out and they're starving again. And so Jacob says to the ten brothers, go back down and buy some more food. And they say, listen, this guy said we will not see his face. We will not even get into the presence. We'll not be able to make a request unless we bring Benjamin. And that interchange of why did you tell them while he questioned us goes on back and forth. It's not until Judah pledges his safety, right? In verse 9, that Jacob's heart is melted. And as they prepare to leave, look at what Jacob tells them to do in verse 11 and 12. Jacob says to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags. Carry a present down to the man, a little balm, honey, gum, myrrh, pistachios, and take double the money. What's going on here? Jacob is going to pay this guy off. He's going to pay this guy off. He loads them up with all these things that he thinks that Joseph can't get down in Egypt and he gives them double the money. 
He thinks that he can influence Jacob, um, Joseph, down in Egypt. He thinks he can influence this man, can tip the scales in their direction to ingratiate themselves to the second in command of the most powerful nation in the world. Think about that for a minute. They're bringing pistachio nuts and double their money to a man who probably is one of the richest men in the world, who can get anything he wants at any time, and they think that they're going to bundle up a little money and a couple, couple pistachio nuts and pay him off. Pause and think about that for a moment. It would be like you and I needing to go to Bill Gates and ingratiate ourselves to him monetarily. Think of, okay, we get a, we get a, okay, I can only think in my context. I get a bunch of money together. What I think is a lot of money, I put $10,000 together. Okay, that's going to be sacrificial for me. It's going to affect my life. And I go to Bill Gates with my little briefcases, you know. I actually did this out if, if, if they were all ones, okay, because I really want to impress him with the size of this and the weight of this. If they were all ones, it would be 22 pounds of cash that I would bring to Bill Gates. Here is $10,000. How would he react to that? He just spent $5 million on a vacation in the Mediterranean. On a vacation. $10,000 is approximately what it costs him to wash his yacht monthly. It's silly, isn't it? It's silly. I think I'm bringing all this power with me, and it's a pittance. It's nothing. He doesn't need the money. And it's the same when we come to God and try and ingratiate ourselves to God. And we do it in so many different ways. We have this silly idea that we can influence him, don't we? There's a part of each of our hearts, each of our hearts that really believes that in some way we can pay God off. With our good behavior... I'll be good enough. Don't we think that? Am I the only one that thinks that I can live well enough to impress God? Come to him with what we think is our good behavior and and we say, look, look at how I'm living. When it comes to our morality, we say, look what I sacrificed for you. We come to him with what we think are our good works and say, now do you accept me? I did all these things. Come to him with our great and mighty tithes and we say, look at how much I gave you. A few briefcases full of ones to a trillionaire. Do you really want to know what influences God? Weakness. Powerlessness. Desperation for him. Hopelessness. 
without him. Deuteronomy 7, he tells the people of Israel, I did not choose you because you were so numerous. It's nothing that you did. God chooses the weak. He, he is attracted to people who feel powerless. Like the centurion that came to Jesus and said, I got nothing more I can do. Like, like the desperation of the woman who said, if I can just touch his cloak. Like the woman who came in weeping at Jesus' feet. The hymn writer got it right. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Part of the road to reconciliation in any relationship, especially your relationship with God, is to realize we are powerless to influence him with anything we can do. The next marker on our road to reconciliation is surrender. Surrender. We see this in verses 11, 12, 13, and 14 where Jacob suggests this payoff that we just talked about. And then he does a pretty amazing thing. Look at verses 13 and 14 with me. Jacob says this, Take also your brother and arise and go to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your brother and Benjamin. As for me, I am bereaved of my children. Then I am bereaved. Jacob is willing to let Benjamin go. Unlike where we left him in chapter 42, he gets to a place where he goes, you know what, i got to let him go. He's willing to let what is most precious to him go. I do, our family just, uh, my, my wife did a wonderful thing. She brought us all to the Grand last week and we watched the three Lord of the Rings, two of them back to back. Okay, 15 hours of movies right here. And so that precious of Gollum has been ringing in my head this week as I was preparing. Jacob, Benjamin was Jacob's precious. The thing he would not let go. And yet here he lets it go. And that is what it takes for any reconciliation at any level, a willingness to give up something that is important to you. A willingness to give up something that is important to you. In any relationship, it's, it's your sense of rightness. Okay, I know I'm the only one here that fights with his wife, so you can just use me as the test example here. But when I fight with my wife, I think I'm right. You know, I kind of come from the perspective of, you know, this, this is it. I'm right. That's why we fight, because I'm right. And I've learned that that's not always true. I'm, I'm progressing. And I have to give up my sense of rightness for reconciliation to even be a possibility. I have to give up a position of strength so to speak, if reconciliation is going to happen. And it's no different in your relationship with God. 
It's no different. There has to be a willingness to give up something precious that you hold on to. And by the way, that's, that's maybe a, a, another definition of a biblical concept of idolatry. You have, he requires you to give up your precious. He requires you in salvation to give up your righteousness, right? Your rightness to start the relationship. And then to continue in the relationship, he continues to demand of you your precious. What's precious to you? What is it that you hold on to that you look to for your meaning, purpose, and value? The great 5th century theologian Augustine wrote, Idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used and using anything that ought to be worshipped. It's a good definition. We should be worshiping Yahweh, but instead we use him to get things that we worship, don't we? We, we, we operate at a deep level on the health, wealth, gospel ourselves, don't we? In context of this narrative, Benjamin is Jacob's precious. I'm not going to give up Benjamin. Last week we unpacked that Benjamin was his favorite son from his favorite wife, the youngest, the most special He took the place of Joseph as the favorite. And he is so important to him. Think about this. It's been a year. One of his sons is in captivity. And he's not willing to let Benjamin go. Think about that for a minute. He's willing to sacrifice Simeon to keep Benjamin. It's my precious. So important he's willing to treat his sons as if they're, as we said last week, as if they're expendable. You guys go. So important that he's willing to suffer and even starve and almost die to keep Benjamin. They're starving. That's why he's going down. That's textbook behavior of what an idol ultimately and always demands of you. If, if, you, if anything is in the place of God in your life, it will take you along that road, the same road that I just described with Jacob. That's what idols do to you and me. They require so much and ultimately deliver so little. Whether it's security, your idol is security, or comfort, or ease of life, or finances, or your idol of reputation before people, your idol of work or pleasure, of approval, of control. How many of us have an idol of control? Position, prestige, the idol of power, of relationship, of your family, of your spouse. If any of these, if you look to any of these to satisfy you, and not God, whatever that is, will buckle underneath that weight eventually. It'll be crushed by that. Take any of these, for example. If you look to control as your ballast in life, if I have control, that's it. I got it. When life gets messy, and life gets messy, you'll be unsettled. 
you'll be anxious. You'll be fearful. That's how you'll live your life. If you look to people's approval to get the keel as your keel in life, if you look to people's approval, teenagers especially, this is where you're vulnerable, you look to people's approval of you, when you don't get it, you'll be devastated. You won't be able to give up off the floor. If you look to your reputation as your anchor in life, if I have my reputation intact, I'm okay. When it gets tarnished by others or by you, you're crushed. If you look to work to fulfill you for that meaning and purpose and satisfaction, that deep satisfaction that we look for in life, if it's work for you, When you get fired, when you get laid off, when you don't get that raise, when you don't fill in the blank, you're you're decimated. When you look to your spouse to satisfy you completely, when that relationship isn't working well, it's hard to get up in the morning. Anglican theologian Robert Wright Uh, Christopher Wright penned this, the worst thing about idols, as the Hebrew scriptures so tirelessly point out, is that that they are utterly useless when you need them the most. As we've said from this pulpit over and over again, even really, really good things can become idols in our life. We've listed a couple. Godly things things that are important to God. Church can become an idol. Relationships, family, spouse, if you're looking to them to satisfy you, when you need it the most, it will utterly disappoint you. Next, we see brokenness as a need for any reconciliation to take place. There has to be brokenness. Look with me at verse 30. In verse 30, we read about Joseph meeting his brother Benjamin for the first time, and and his reaction is, is stunning here. It says that they met him, Joseph saw Benjamin, his blood brother, and he hurried out for his compassion grew warm for his brother and he sought a place to weep. He can't contain himself. He can't control himself anymore. He has to leave the room. Different translations read, he was deeply moved, deeply stirred, overcome with affection. Here's another way to put it. Joseph's heart was broken. His heart was broken. Joseph was a man of deep feeling. There's no, there's seven times in the Joseph narrative where Joseph weeps. Seven times were shown. This is the second of them. His heart is broken here. His relationship, it, it, it washes over him. Yes, there's joy in seeing Benjamin, but there's also the realization of the brokenness of the family. 
Through Joseph, I think we get a glimpse into God's heart here. We get a glimpse into God's heart. God's heart is broken over the lack of peace, over the lack of shalom he has with his creation. There is deep anguish and sorrow. God in the scriptures literally wears his heart on his sleeve. You know, we're told not to do that, right? You're just going to get hurt. God is continually showing his heart to us. I think we saw it back in chapter 3 at the moment of the fall when he comes to search for Adam and Eve and, and he realizes what's happened. And do you remember what he says? What have you done? I read that as a broken heart. I don't read that as, what have you done? I read that as, there's a realization. Now, there's no realization with God. We're anthropomorphizing here. We see it again in chapter 6 when he looks down and sees the wickedness of man before the flood. All of mankind wicked. And it says it grieved him. One translation uh, translates that, and it broke his heart. I love that. Broke his heart. And we see his heart throughout Scripture. Isaiah 22, speaking through Isaiah, he says to his people, Turn away from me. Let me weep bitterly. Do not try to console me over the destruction of my people. He's, he's broken over the relationship. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet because he shows God's emotion through his, his prophetic book and lamentations. And he's constantly weeping there. He's really showing the people how God feels about the relationship. He says in chapter 8 of Jeremiah, Since my people are crushed, I am crushed. He says in Jeremiah 13, If you do not listen, I will weep in secret because of your pride. I mean, it's a picture of Joseph here. Do we realize how painful it is for God that the relationship, the shalom between us and he has been broken? His heart was broken over our relationship. We see this so vividly when Jesus comes into Jerusalem. We read about it. In our public reading of scripture, he crests the hill, he sees Jerusalem. Jerusalem was to be the place where he and his people were to abide in perfect shalom. What does he say? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How often would I have gathered your children together as hens gathers a brood under her wings, but you were not willing. And he's weeping. His heart is broken over his relationship with us. Have you ever had a relationship that there's strife in or a broken relationship and, and right here actually hurts? Have you had that? Have you, it actually hurts. I think that's where we get this heartache, we call it, because there's a physical something that happens right here that it hurts. I think God, it hurts him. That our relationship is not shalom. That's how God feels. That's actually the heart behind the trite verse that we say that is held up at golf tournaments. God so loved the world. 
his heart was broken for the world. And what did he do about it? Did he just go into his own universal room and, and, and cry? No. He did something about it. And that's where Jesus came. To heal the brokenness. And he does that through the last marker on our road to reconciliation, that is sacrifice. If you look at verses 8 and 9, we read them twice already. That's Judah's pledge. If I do not bring Benjamin back, then let me bear the blame forever. Do you hear it? It is that willing sacrifice that melts Jacob's heart. He lets go his precious. And it's that same pledge that Christ made. I will go. I will take the blame forever for the people. And you know what? We're not going to talk about it here. We're actually going to experience it right now. Because this represents the sacrifice that it took to bring us back into relationship. You know, we don't have to talk about it and listen to it orally. We can experience it visually and taste it. That's why he left this here for us. So that we would be reminded that this is how he restores relationship with him. Through Jesus coming and living the perfect life, the life perfectly lived under the law, it says in in Galatians 4, to redeem those under the law. They couldn't live by the law. We sin in word, thought, and deed every moment. And Jesus came and said, you can't do it, but I will. And that was a sacrifice. That's what we talk about at Christmas all the time, don't we? What a great sacrifice it was for, you know, in Aladdin it says, big, awesome power in a little teeny living space. That's what he did. He limited himself. God. And it was a sacrifice to live that perfect life. And we all know it was a sacrifice to willingly go to the cross. Because we know that there is a consequence to sin. The Bible tells us the consequence to sin is death. Yes, physical death, but spiritual death too. An eternity away from God. And Jesus said, I will lay down and take your place. That's why we have the bread. That's why we say, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it in front of them and said, take this, this is my body broken for you. He's giving them a visual saying, you deserve this. You deserve to die. But I will take your place. It's one of the great transactions of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, I will die for you in your place. And the other great transaction is if you believe that and trust that, the promise in Scripture is his perfect record that he lived gets transferred over to your account. 
You get the ticket that he earned. That's called accepting the gospel. And as we eat the bread, and as we drink the wine, we remember the great peace that he restores to the relationship through Christ. That's what we're remembering. Elders, please come up and serve.